Welcome to the first ever episode 118 of Fintech Insider, coming to you live from Level 39, the heart of the fintech action. We've now been downloaded over 106 countries, and we remain among the top business podcasts on iTunes in the UK. So thank you for listening. You guys just rock our whole little world. Chris Skinner has returned from Vegas to report back from Money 2020, and later in the show we'll have Chloe James, our favourite Sky News presenter, joining us to discuss the highlights. But without further ado, let's jump into the news. And this week we've got an interesting story to start us with, David. The FT have compiled their list of future fintech, an awards shortlist here. So, interesting list of companies here. Any any standing out to you, David? Um, well, it, it seems like quite a, a grown-up list, really, as you'd probably expect from the FT, which is you know pretty good. We've got Pension B in there, we've got R three in there in the Innovation Award shortlist, and actually they have a, a pretty stellar lineup in terms of the judges. So we've got Eileen Burbage, we've got Costa Peric. So it kind of feels like they're taking this quite seriously in terms of what they're doing. It would be interesting, I think, to see who actually sort of comes out on top in this one in terms of where where we're going. But arguably a very grown-up list, and look forward to seeing who. I, I like um, there's a company in there called uh, Novastone as well so they offer ultra secure instant messaging for financial services industry now this does not sound exciting to most people I've got ultra secure messaging I use WhatsApp and, it, and it's kind of got encryption on it right well in financial services there's a whole bunch of messaging that you then need to be able to report to the regulator but you don't want your competitors to see so this actually solves a real problem so there was this problem uh, you may have remembered the LIBOR rigging when um, certain banks were talking to each other in really dodgy ways to try and move the London interbank lending rate. And there was no evidence or paper trail of this for quite some time because they were using instant messaging services instead of using email, so there was no audit trail. And the reason they were using email was because they could keep it private and secure and, and so on. They, they would have the official messaging there and then they would have the private messaging here. So this is potentially solving some real challenges, but also allowing people to message. Yeah, I think there's definitely some interesting ones in there. It, it feels like the the sort of spread of type of companies in in this, you know, one single category covering, you know, anything from uh, like say Novastone through to you know investments through to you know blockchain pieces. It's going to be very difficult to have a very sort of clear categorization of how they're actually spreading these this criteria. But there was one in in here that I I haven't heard of these guys before being perfectly honest, Essentia Analytics. So these guys do behavioral data such as heart rate, anxiety levels, and amount of sleep to help investors uncover behavioral biases in their judgment, which I felt kind of interesting in terms of what's going there. So I'm going to go and do a little bit more digging about this in terms of where we are and, uh, and then look forward to seeing what the FT thinks is the uh, most innovative uh, company of the year. On a wider perspective, it's really demonstrating that when the Financial Times, the Telegraph, you know, the, the serious grey media, so to speak, and, or pink in the case of FT, oh. are taking fintech so seriously, then and this market is mature. I mean, it's one that everyone's now saying is a serious market to contend with rather than just being a sort of upstart, new, interesting, twinkly thing. Absolutely. It's nice to know we're a part of the court, kids. Got, got the big boy pants now. <laughs> walking around in my big boy pants. Um, speaking of big boy pants, Chris, um, the, it looks Good like thing. the uh, the UK court, uh, the UK pants, high court. Big boy pants, just big pants. <laughs> <laughs> I meant the UK high court has handed a defeat to the UK government on Brexit and says there will have to be an MP vote here. What's going on here? Yeah, I think the government's going to need some big pants to deal with this because, um, <laughs> to a large extent, Theresa May was saying that. 
everything would be flipped on and uh, the exit from the European Union would start in March or before. And as soon as you uh, trigger Article 50, you've got two years to negotiate all the trade deals to exit the European Union and to uh, redo actually what amounts to hundreds of law and contract structures um, between our different countries and members. And um, a investment manager decided that uh, one thing that no one had noticed is that by the letter of the law, um, there has to be a parliamentary vote to approve triggering Article 50. And so she took the government to court to say this is what should happen. And the court has agreed, saying that by the letter of the law, forget politics, forget you know, any emotions by the letter of the law, constitutionally, you can't just get royal assent to put the Article 50 through, which is what Theresa May thought she could do. You have to get the approval of the whole of Parliament. So it has to go to a vote, and the Remainers, of which is the majority of the MPs in Parliament, probably won't vote for triggering Article 50 until we've got many of these trade deals renegotiated and these contracts redone in favourable ways. And so this is a complete mess. Uncertainty rumbles on with the uh, with the old-fashioned Brexit. And uh, there's a couple of uh, really interesting articles here in terms of the impact of a potential Brexit on UK fintech. So there's an article from Reuters saying UK fintech is finding EU barriers emerging after the Brexit vote. And we covered this a little bit when we were in Berlin, but there's, uh, there's several in this article here, Chris. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few articles cropping up um, basically saying that you know, Berlin, who, as you mentioned when we were there, is wooing all of the fintech startups to move there, as is Luxembourg and quite a few of the other countries. The problem with that is that right now, the reason why London was leading the fintech community before Brexit vote is that we have adjacency. So we have regulators, technologists, banks, and all the um, associated professions from audit compliance um you know, sitting next to each other and as a result you can visit anybody within 20 minutes across retail commercial investment banking insurance wealth management now that's going to be broken into all the different corners of europe if we don't have passporting and that's the critical question can we keep passporting into the european union after leaving and um most people are saying no there's an interesting piece in this article here that said um, after the Brexit vote, we had um, Jonathan Hill, who was an MEP and had a role as the Financial Services Commissioner in Brussels. Uh, he, he actually stepped down from his position as that Financial Services committer, uh, Commissioner after the Brexit vote. So now UK fintechs are finding they're not getting the access they need in Brussels and found that they've been shut out of most of the discussions in Brussels um, around you know what's going to be developed, what the impact on their business is going to be, and really their ability to effectively lobby in Brussels has been completely hampered um, and is holding them back. Yeah, I, I mean, I chaired a couple of debates before the Brexit vote, one of which was with Sharon Bowles, who's been an MEP, who's been um, strategically important from the UK's perspective in shaping PSD2, MIFID, and many of the European directors that have gone through European Parliament. And what she said is that um, being in that role was a much stronger voice when dealing with the USA, for example, as the head of European financial services discussions rather than just being the UK. And that's gone away, which is actually going to be quite a difficult thing because it leaves us stranded. The FCA came out recently with figures that there's 13,484 firms using passporting, of which 5,476 are here in the UK. So, you know, over a third of the companies that are using single European passporting are based in UK and London. And this is a fairly stupid situation to be in there. 
Yeah, no, the whole passporting situation does seem like it gets um, very difficult. And, and City AM actually reported along those lines that uh, the passporting rights deal that we had hoped to achieve, where you know even if we Brexit, our fintech companies can still passport back into Europe, looks more and more unachievable, according to top EU lawyers. And that's all about, is it a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit, which sounds a bit dicey to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hard Brexit basically means that we leave and we lose all our uh, single market access rights, which is the free movement of people, labor, goods and services um, and capital. And if we lose those rights, then any UK financial company has to re- get a new license in Europe, which is going to be the reason why many of them would move and leave the UK. I think all of this sums up to me as possibly the worst possible outcome at the moment, right? The uncertainty in the, the government, the elongation of any processes you know, this is the slowest removal of the Band-Aid ever, isn't it, in terms of kind of what we're doing. And, you know, the uncertainty in the market is always the worst part. If if actually we got to a point where at least if there was unfavorable terms, we came to terms with it and we dealt with it. But arguably what's going to happen is all of the uncertainty is going to further kind of exacerbate the reduction of investment that we're seeing in the UK in terms of what we're doing. It continually sort of breeds that uncertainty in terms of kind of where we're going, which you know, for me is is the worst thing. I'd rather just know and as be able to deal with it rather than, you know, not know and continually have to, you know, keep making up where we're going, really. Possibly, yes. But on the other hand, um, I mean, I write quite often about Brexit on the blog and um, I'm a Remainer, as I think we all are, by the way we're talking. But I got a really good email from someone who voted to leave um, the other day, which I put on the blog, which is actually saying that um, the centralization of power is the opposite of what people want these days and that the European Union is purely using it to centralize power in Germany, um, which is maybe a little bit extreme. But having said that, it is about a control f- structure which um, when you have democratization through the internet taking place is the opposite of actually the way that the world is moving. Very interesting times. And speaking of democratization, it seems like um, UK fintech has gotten its its act together and and pushed for its very own big bang moment, of course, harkening back to the big bang in the 80s with uh, a lot of deregulation in the city uh, and in financial services. It looks like um, the UK's quote-unquote world-leading fintech industry will meet this week with top government officials seeking to spark another big bang moment, the first of which kicked off making the city as a global financial powerhouse. So an uh, article here in uh, City AM kind of talking about l- several meetings in Westminster with um, treasury and trade officials to, uh, to try and push for some sort of either deregulation and or uh, recreation of London as a financial centre. And it seems to me like fintech's pushing for its positive news story out of this Brexit and and trying to find the opportunities and the upside here. Well, I'm not sure that it's a positive news story, but it's a great marketing spin uh, and a label to put on it. Let's look back into history and find something we did really well in financial (laughs) services. Let's say that we're going to do that again. And hopefully that will, you know, generate some kind of momentum. Yeah, and for those of us who can remember the Big Bang, because I think some of us maybe were born after it, uh, it was 1986 when actually Margaret Thatcher and Cecil Parkinson, who was then Trade Minister, pushed through the reformation of the London financial markets by getting rid of the people who used to go around trading in a gentlemanly fashion between blokes and chaps um, and made it all automated. And what's been interesting through that process is that it allowed us to compete 
with the USA. I remember myself um, in the 1990s, we had this huge argument about Frankfurt taking over from, from London with derivatives and futures exchanges. And it hasn't happened. And the main reason is that London is the Madonna of the financial markets. It changes every, every year. Mm-hmm. Keeps do, we, uh, do we feel that we have the, the leadership in place to make that happen? You know, oddly enough, Jason and myself were having this discussion in the taxi on the way over here. You know, actually, for all of her faults, Margaret Thatcher definitely had the the balls, ironically, to really sort of be a, a very strong bags. leader in terms of sort of doing things. So, you know, do we think now with all of the sort of changes that we've had over the last few years where, you know, leadership has been quite passive, do we feel that we're in a position now to have that kind of front up to the States or front up to, to Europe to really sort of negotiate these terms properly? I know. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what Donald Trump makes of Theresa May. She's got some, some nice handbags and shoes. Yeah. I'm not going there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going there. <laughs> Anything springing to my mind now is just really like not necessary. So let's uh, moving swiftly on. Well, I guess it's I guess it's interesting. One last piece that uh, I see that the meeting with the Treasury on Tuesday will focus on fintech domestically, including areas such as P2P lending and challenger banks. Just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. Uh, while a second on Wednesday will focus on areas with more international relevance, such as payments and FX. And I guess what they're looking for is some kind of leverage, some kind of how could we change things to to have that competitive nature brought back to, to something that leads to that a correction of that bias following Brexit. How do we make this suddenly attractive because of something specific? I'm not sure what they'll what they'll find. There's a point here right at the end from Dan Morgan that was, um, you know, the the UK's advantage has traditionally been very progressive policy towards fintech, and I guess the whatever they find, they're basically saying, well, we'll we'll you know, create policy or regulate around it, whatever it is, but let's discuss it first. So not just that, but the key thing here is that we're principles based regulation. And so we look at the outcomes. We're not going to write down thousands of words that no one can digest saying exactly what you can and cannot do, which is what you have in continental Europe, particularly in France. And so what you end up with is, and right now in some ways we're lucky that you know, London has that fintech advantage, the UK has that advantage. We've made the Brexit vote decision. When it's going to happen, we still have no idea, thanks to this high court decision. And bear, bear in mind, that's going to go to Supreme Court soon. Mm. And that, so we will get clarification as to whether there has to be a parliamentary vote on Article 50. But the good news is that whilst all that's going on, Europe has messed itself up anyway. I mean, just look at the um, Walloons from Belgium voting to not deal with Canada. I mean, Europe is in, in a downward spiral still. So actually, for us, it's actually still good news. Although on that one, didn't we take 10 years to negotiate the terms of, of actually trading with Canada? So, you know, we got there, but uh, maybe 10 years from now, hopefully, we're, we're not still talking about yeah, the terms. Yeah, terms but it's of easier when you're dealing with the colonies. <laughs> Very South true. Park was right, blame Canada. Indeed. Um, I, I think the, the thing out of this, Dan Morgan, and um, increasingly we're sort of seeing Simon Kirby uh, say very sensible things in this space in terms of what we're doing. So I think we should probably reach out to those guys and um, you know see if we can hear from them directly. Yeah, future guests, you, you heard it here first. Uh, so the next story up is one from Finextra saying Mastercard releases blockchain APIs. This is right on the back of uh, Visa having announced their own kind of initiative with Chain.com. Seems like the uh, the payment card brands that you know and love really want to get their hands on some of this blockchain stuff about three years after everyone else started looking at it, which is either them reacting to a lot of market initiative or them starting to really get their head around it. What's interesting about this is They've essentially put some work-in-progress code into a sandbox that developers can come and play with, which I think is a really interesting idea. And it's largely around you know, sort of peer-to-peer payments or you know, 
different types of machine to machine payments and, and these sorts of things being facilitated using a blockchain. And, and it's a sort of a very experimental approach from MasterCard, which is quite different to the Visa approach, which was announced sort of at Money 2020 last week, which was Visa, we have this, uh, we're saying very much, we have this specific proposition for high value payments between very large companies. MasterCard are saying, we kind of don't know what our proposition is going to be. Here are some ideas. Why don't you guys come play with it and we'll figure it out as we go. Two very different approaches there, Chris. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the card companies are obviously feeling um, under pressure to do something around shared distributed ledgers because we know that we're going to move to very low-cost networking transaction exchange uh, in high volume in the Internet of Things. You're talking trillions of transactions nonstop every day. And Visa and MasterCard both want to be at the core of enabling those things to happen. How they build them is going to be the challenge. And the Visa chain announcement is one that uh, we'll be talking more about um, at the Money 2020 show because I met with the CEO Adam and talked specifically about what they're developing with Visa and it is right now focused on B2B. Um, When we get into M2M, machine-to-machine stuff, that's going to be when it's really interesting. Yeah, so the amount that the likes of a Visa or a MasterCard charges a small business or a large business for facilitating in a transaction is based on a set of assumptions about how Visa facilitates that transaction. So they have fixed costs like their servers, their network, their people, their marketing. And does blockchain change those costs? And does it allow, for example, my phone to start paying for things happening in my car? Or does it allow you know all of my devices in my house to start communicating with each other and doing small payments between each other and facilitating new types of commerce? And we've also got to remember they're heritage companies in that um, you've got Ant Financial who uh, equally were at Money 2020 saying that by the end of the decade they want a million merchants to be using Alipay in the USA. So, you know, China and China Union Pay and Financial, many of those companies are not going to be staying in China. They're global platforms and they're going to be coming everywhere. So there's not just Visa and MasterCard out there. And one of the key things I thought was interesting with Alipay is that they're using blockchains so that you can see the provenance of where your money goes. So if you make a payment to a charity, you can actually see that it goes to the charity, not in the pocket of the person running the charity. Which to me makes total sense. One of my pet peeves, Jason, you'll be glad to know, a pet peeve is coming out on the show, <laughs> is when people say blockchain, oh, isn't that just a transactional technology? And I say, no. It's just Bitcoin, isn't it? Oh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. it right there. That's the pet peeve. Uh, no, it's much more, as you know. And it's uh, the, the reality <laughs> Is I like to think of it as the perfect auditor. If um, I want to know where something's going, what something's done, then it's a really good idea if um, lots of people can see those facts. Uh, the metaphor I've used here a number of times is the idea that if I'm the only person in the room and a piano falls through the roof and I run outside and try and tell everybody that a piano fell through the roof, they're going to look at the guy with the ginger beard and go, yeah, you're crazy. But if all of us ran out of the room, let's say this room had 300 people in it, then the person standing outside the room would immediately ask, oh my goodness, what just happened in there? And we would tell them a piano fell through the roof and there would be no doubt. This is the power of consensus. This is the power of many people being able to validate data. And speaking of the power of consensus and speaking of Bitcoin, Jason, and speaking of payments, this may have just invalidated my point, but um, (laughs) there's a cryptocurrency on the block um, and it's all the rage at the moment uh, all of the geeks are now mining a new currency called zcash uh, or zcash if you're british um, but you know the, most of this comes out of the state so we're going to call it zcash for now this is a really interesting type of cryptocurrency coming from the idea that bitcoin isn't private enough and it's interesting that regulators think well bitcoin's too anonymous we should probably try and stamp it out and kill it um, in some cases not all cases 
And there are people who are fans of privacy and anonymity on the internet who say, no, Bitcoin isn't private enough. We need to invent something new. And the letter Z or Z is used at the beginning of this because of a sexy technology that they use called zero-knowledge proofs. Oh, hold on. But the, the software developer's name is Zuku. Zuko Wilcox. Yeah. So come on, he's got to have named it after himself. I wonder if he changed his name as a result of it. Like that can't be a real name. Nobody's called Zuko. Zuko. That's a, it's a great name if it's his real name. Uh, that said, so what's interesting about a zero knowledge proof is well, it's kind of what it says on the tin. Really, I can prove something without knowing anything about it. Um, so if I ask a question, I can get the right answer to that question without necessarily seeing the underlying data. So, for example, if you wanted to know, is this person over the age of 18, you would get a response, yes, but you wouldn't get their date of birth. That's kind of loosely a metaphor for how zero-knowledge proofs work. Well, using that in a distributed ledger says, well, these parties are transacting with each other. I can see that there are many parties transacting with many people, but I can't tell what amount they transacted for or who the parties were transacting. But the really, really interesting thing here is something over the top of it called, um, I think it's Z-Security, which means that there can be a third party to any transaction. So let's say um, Jason and I are in a transaction and we wanted to keep that entirely private. There would be no way for the world to see that. But what we could do is Jason and I could be in a transaction and our bank could be a third party to that transaction and they could reveal our identities to a regulator if they needed. So Zcash appears to have uh, built a currency that works not only for people who want to hide from regulators, but also something that works very well for regulators. So it's, it's this really interesting so, duality. Just clarify, Simon, I mean, Bitcoin is a completely public blockchain ledger service. Uh, Ethereum is a hybrid of private public. So is this like Ethereum or is it like Bitcoin? I mean, I mean what's it actually solving the problem from? So it's the probably closer to Bitcoin in that it's an entirely public ledger in that sense. So it's, it's entirely public. But it, the problem it's solving really is around privacy, security and scalability. So privacy in so far as um, it's pretty easy to figure out who's doing what on Bitcoin. Uh, the FBI and the NSA have gotten pretty effective at that through companies like Chainalysis. So privacy is one issue it's aimed to solve. The second issue is the cost and the time a transaction takes in Bitcoin. It can be anything up to 30 minutes to an hour. Um, and sometimes you're paying anything up to 20 to 30 pence for a transaction now. They're getting quite costly per transaction. So again, Zcash is much faster in how it reaches consensus. Uh, and I think also then the additional security levels it brings in terms of potentially allowing regulators and banks to have something they can use, but then something that also operates as cash in your pocket elsewhere in the market makes it really interesting hybrid and definitely the next generation it's like it's like the step on from bitcoin on so being simple bitcoin 2.0 well it's interesting when it first came out i thought that it was a a new dark web currency you know okay bitcoin what is it great for you know buying illegal stuff on on the dark web and something that that brings increased privacy Great, that just you know makes that all all the easier. But all of the language seems to be about the enterprise. So yeah. the, the press release says if you're J.P. Morgan and you can see all of Credit Suisse's books, and neither J.P. Morgan nor Credit Suisse is comfortable with that level of transparency. So there's a lot of talk of that sort of enterprise level uh, security, and then bringing in the regulator that c- could see what's going on, whereas the players 
you know, couldn't, uh, seems to hint towards that kind of enterprise level investment bank capital markets transactions Absolutely. with a third party that can do some monitoring. So it, it was, it's definitely doesn't seem to be that dark web currency. They seem to be aiming it towards something, you know, something corporate, something corporate. But the question is, is this on a, on their own platform? Does it run on uh, Bitcoin blockchain, on Ethereum, on other? It's places? entirely their own platform. Um, so it's an entirely new code base run entirely by uh, a discrete separate set of miners. So similarly to how Bitcoin has these companies that do quote unquote mining, which is like the payments processing for Bitcoin, these, these entities that manage and feed and water the system. Okay. Um, there's not one entity that does it. Zcash works in the same way. There are these miners who feed and water the system. Um, but it's an entirely different software protocol that um, that uh, looks similar in that uh, anybody can pick up and run it today. But you could also probably take that code base and implement it in a private way too. Moving on from uh, my uh, topic du jour of, of blockchain and Zcash, uh, Jason, there's one here on uh, Business Insider about the fintech startup founded by ex-Barclays CEO Anthony Jenkins has already done its first big deal. Yeah, this is interesting. So on a Virgin Money third quarter earnings call, uh, their CEO, Jainan Gadia, well, not, not only revealed that actually Virgin Money have been doing pretty well with a 90% rise in gross mortgage lending and a 12% rise in deposits, but, but threw in that uh, Virgin Money had signed a deal with 10x Future Technologies in order to build uh, what is essentially a new truly digital banking platform. And the person behind 10x Future Technologies is Anthony Jenkins, the uh, ex-CEO of Barclays, who has created a new company to address uh, what he sees as a need, the, the, the Uber moment of banking, as he calls it, uh, by building this new cloud-based technology. Well, it sounds like there's a real need in the market for that. I mean, Chris has often blogged and, and David as well has often blogged about uh, the need for new platforms in financial services and the fact that you've got uh, legacy processes, legacy technology, and often legacy people trying to um, do new things in new ways um, doesn't fit together. And, and what Anthony Jenkins is, is kind of saying here is that he agrees with Chris and David all along. Is, is that the case? <laughs> Well, it's interesting that did he, the did he CEO... mention this specifically in the article? Or... <laughs> I, I don't yeah. think he did. It's interesting the CEO of a somewhat sort of traditional bank is now a tech tech uh, CEO. But I that... think I think this is him though seeing what was perceived potentially as the major drawback continually in the work that was conducted in Barclays. You know, actually, if only we could fix this major sort of millstone around our neck. And arguably, core banking has, has been that. I think the, the the article kind of refers almost almost not at all to core banking and actually into all of the different things around data analytics and what you actually do with it once you have those digital services and digital processes in place type thing. Um, but, you know, very interesting tie-in. I have to say, I, I, if in all honesty, I kind of feel like Virgin Money haven't quite lived up to my hope for them uh, when they sort of first started out in terms, of, um, in terms of banking. I think if I was to say Virgin, as in the brand, was starting a, a bank, I would expect them to be a lot more kind of radical than, than where they are in they're terms of what they're I doing. Mean, Virgin Money started in 1997. They've done diddly squat. I'm waiting for them to do something. Well, maybe this is the start. Well, but I'm, I'm very sceptical. I mean, you know, they, they mentioned that 10x future technologies will build Virgin Money, a cloud-based core banking system that will allow it to better analyze customer data. And then the, the statement, which 
which I feel it sort of almost undermines the message, is that um, Anthony Jenkins said that our adva- advanced data modeling and database design will help develop an even deeper understanding of each individual customer. But it's not about the data model and the database. You know, all of the people who are doing really clever new core banking systems are frequently using, you know, uh, CockroachDB, Cassandra, open source, distributed databases, you know, all the like. So, so it isn't creating a database. It isn't the data model. There's a lot around it. And so it just strikes me that, you know, the people who really get this and understand this, I assume, will be coming into 10x future technologies. Uh, but the language coming from the top isn't the language of, mm. you know, the problems to solve. It just, there's a, there's a dissonance for me. It's also interesting that there's a lot of senior figures around the industry, particularly coming from Barclays, to be honest, who are making a mark in fintech. A good example is David Walker, who's chairman of Settle, which is a blockchain-based clearing settlement company. And I keep bumping into Ashok Vazwani, who's the mm. Barclay UK CEO, who was at a fintech conference I was at in New York last week. He's at a fintech conference in London that I'm at next week. And so I'm guessing that he might be on his way out. <laughs> <laughs> Chris's um, crystal ball is is stronger than ever. We'll be re- we'll be repeat. We'll coming ga- coming back to this moment in a future episode. <laughs> yeah. I'm, g- I'm getting worried. I've got to have big pants to hold my crystal balls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Jason, uh, last major story this week is Facebook blocks um, the insurance company Admiral. They had a car insurance discount plan. How, why is Facebook blocking um, Admiral here? They had nice adverts. I like those guys. Surely, there's no evil here. Yeah, so um, this was covered by a variety of news outlets, including the BBC. And uh, Facebook has apparently blocked plans by an insurer. And we should say their plans. This wasn't a live trial. It wasn't anything in specifically. And what Admiral were looking to do was to use Facebook Connect, which is smart. You know, no one wants to have new usernames and passwords. People want to log in with logins they already have. But what was interesting is that they were going to go beyond just using it as a login and actually then asking for permissions to get access to, to Facebook data and then using that data in their decisioning, in their, their risk assessment. I think it's a, it's a weird one, though, because what we're sort of getting into here is actually Facebook deciding what's right and wrong for customers to do with their data. So, so essentially, the, um, the customer was giving permission to do this. You know, I've used Facebook Connect to do really random things, giving all sorts of data away just for free Wi-Fi and airports. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it sort of feels strange that this is the line that Facebook are drawing with regards to kind of what you can and can't do. Um, I think it's an interesting one. And like I say, given the um, the conversation that we had last week about insurance, then, you know, maybe this was one of the things that Admiral was like trying to do. I do find it slightly strange that they would use pretty minimal things to make you know, quite large leaps of faith in terms of actually what my premium Risk should be. Yeah. Uh, because as somebody who posts random things on Facebook, then I really wouldn't like any of that used against me, quite frankly. But so. I guess the I guess the start of it wouldn't be making decisions instantly, but actually just bringing more data in. So because you need a lot of data even to start making these decisions, the fact that someone's using exclamation marks or writing in capital letters or are single or party all the time or go to particular events, you'd only know later on if that impacted their risk in some particular way. <laughs> Those are very Somebody, weak signals. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you know Air. Hey, people use exclamation marks all the time. They're a, they're a different crowd. They're a different breed of human. Uh, but there's a company called Air, A-I-R-E dot I-O. Um, and Anish Varma, uh, I talked to his CEO quite a lot of, uh, I've talked to him quite a lot of there, and he says that a lot of the social network data is actually a really weak signal. 
because it's it's so speculative and fleeting. It, it, you don't know what it means. They actually take a lot more when they're doing alternative credit scoring by actually asking direct questions of customers about you know how do you manage your money? And, do you use exclamation marks? Uh, yeah, well, not necessarily that one, but but it, you can find out a lot more by asking people questions than you can directly from um, you know just some social network posts. And I think this this is Facebook kind of saying, hey. We do respect privacy, even though we've got all of your data. Don't worry, we're not the boogeyman. Look, does protect you. And I think there's also a bit of them trying to make sure you still use it as a social network and protecting the integrity of like people being themselves rather than people trying to be somebody that's gaming their insurance policy via Facebook. Well, I mean, when you look at the reason that they gave as to why they didn't allow it, it wasn't about using data. I mean, so many companies use Facebook Connect data already for all kinds of things. The reason was, uh, they state, that they have clear guidelines that prevent information being obtained from Facebook from being used to make decisions about eligibility, which is really an interesting wording. You know, it's so you can't say no based on data used by Facebook. Hmm, okay, that's, that's kind of interesting. They don't, they don't refer to pricing, they don't refer to targeting, which is obviously a big part of the Facebook platform. But wasn't, it's eligibility. Wasn't Facebook, I, 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 this is going to be really vague, so bear with me on this one, but, but Facebook statuses were recently used in a trial, weren't they? So they basically used somebody, somebody had basically positioned themselves as being, you know, ma- manically depressed, not being able to leave their house, but their Facebook indicated they were sort of very happy, very happily married, blah, 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 blah. And actually this was used as evidence in, in court to disprove the points in which they were making. So, you know, I think think we've got to be sort of reasonably careful because obviously people portray a slightly different world, don't they, in terms of uh, what what people put out there on social to the reality of kind of what they do. But, you know, I I think people should be held accountable to that. I think there's another angle to this as well, which goes back to where we started with the Brexit discussion around centralisation of power versus democratisation of the internet. And I worry about Facebook, if I'm honest, because they're an American company. You know, I don't like having all my memories being controlled by an American organization. Equally, I would worry about any organization that has uh, a domestic registration in the U.S. or China. So when we talk about GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, or we talk about Ant Financial, Tencent, Badu, where are we ever going to see a true social network that's global and democratized? <coughs> there isn't one yet. So there's a lot of people in the blockchain community trying to build decentralized social networks. It's very hard to do that because the the difficult thing is, unless you get these winner-take-all platforms that actually pull in a lot of revenue from advertising, it's very difficult to build a proposition that is as enticing to consumers as the likes of Facebook or, or any of these others. But if you think about the idea of a democratized version of Facebook that isn't controlled by U.S. government, that would surely have far more traction once it's up and running than some domestic-based organization that that can use your data as they see fit or block your data as they see fit. For some people, I'm sure, but for the majority of people, I'm not sure it's a concern. Often it's what problem am I trying to solve today, and that's communicating with my friends or going to an event or looking at some pictures uh, are far higher, you know, sort of immediate priorities than is this organization in the United States managing my data effectively? I think the that is a worry that's in the marketplace. There are people that worry about that, but it's not a... statistically um, significant number of people, easy for me to say. There was one a few years ago. I um, can't remember the name of it. No, no, there was essentially a a platform you paid a subscription to, and it was API-based. People built clients against it. Um, I'll put the the name in the show notes. MySpace? No, no, but but (laughs) while it got a a ton of people to to invest, a lot of tech people signed up as a way that this wouldn't be ad-funded. It would be a a truly... Mm. um, 
decentralized uh, platform owned by everyone. Um, it just didn't catch on. There were, it just wasn't it's that. Before uh, its time. Yeah. Exclamation mark. I think anything that you have to pay for a subscription to access, though, I don't think it's going to, you know, while there is a, it's like, you know, it's like the bank stuff, right? Well, while there is no sensible alternative, nobody's going to do anything else, isn't it? So I think if you, if suddenly everybody asked, was asked to pay 15 quid a month to use Facebook, then, you know, we wouldn't and we'd be moving to something else. Very yeah. quickly, the so. internet needs a new funding mechanism besides advertising because advertising creates a lot of social cost and social consequences in terms of data. Um, and it creates the behavioral need to hold data uh, where and that social contract is a difficult one whereas the social contract of a bank or an insurance company is you pay a premium and we typically are much we have to be much more careful about how we protect your data so that could be an opportunity for financial services the question for me is will they be good enough at building something to compete with the silicon valley or the uh, or the uh, chinese elite of, of technology it's not the example that we saw from china with the lending company that uh, when you take out a loan you have to send in a selfie of you naked and if you don't pay back the loan they put it on the internet and make everyone aware of it nice that, that is terrifying revenge, but true. Por- revenge <laughs> porn enforcement <laughs> so lastly chris um you spoke at a linkedin event in new york recently yeah we just um had the launch of a new research report by fmer linkedin and capgemini uh on the rise of fintech and the main trends that are occurring and um, it was quite interesting insights. It had a bunch of speakers from around the industry, um, including Ashok from Barclays, um, but also uh, the chief marketing officer of JP Morgan, myself and others. And um, it's the first time they've done this report. And if you know the Capgemini reports, you know they have the retail banking, payments, insurance reports. This is a, a new one, which um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's only just come out uh, in, in the last day or so. But I'm in there along with lots of other folks. So I'm sure it must be very, very good indeed. <laughs> it was a, it was a good event actually. I thought there was some some really decent speakers. I saw um, Bill Sullivan who was on there. Neff Hudson thought he was really good on the panel that he did. And obviously Chris, you were excellent as well. Huh? So uh, yeah, well worth, worth watching the videos. Are you seeing any uh, any other trends from the variety of events that you're going to at the moment? You know, is there something that's kind of coming out or noteworthy? Uh, I think the key thing that's coming home to me is that machine learning is very high on the agenda with the bank the banks and starting to think about how to use deep data analytics and machine learning to get better customer relationship through the digital platforms that the customer uses which actually brings us back to that facebook thing which is that you know a lot of banks are saying we need to um, marry external information with internal information to do that deep data analytics and if you're going to be blocking that access it's not going to work is it mm. Interesting. Um, these things come in cycles. There was this talk I remember in 2011 of, of external and internal data in financial services. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, every five years we'll come back around to this one. And the I'm other sure. thing that comes up um, more and more often is fintech collaboration and saying that you know, and that's part of what the report from Capgemini, EFMA, LinkedIn is showing that um, we've moved from fintech being a threat to being seen as an opportunity for banks to improve which uh, is something that's... You know, yes, I, I went to an event, an event um, with Lloyd's probably a month or two ago, and the big sort of message there was it still can take one to two years to get even you know, proof of concepts going, that the, the procurement period, time period and the implementation just takes so yeah. long that if, if you're a fintech in that area and looking to raise money, you can't raise for a, 
you know, a two-year sales cycle. Yeah. Um, it, it seems interesting that the, the banks are talking about all of this sort of collaboration, but at the same time, it just takes forever to get anything done. And at the New York event, I was quite pleased to meet Suresh face-to-face, who's the CEO of CBW Bank, which is this little bank based in a village called Weir, Kansas, um, which has about 750 people who live there. And Suresh is an ex-Google engineer and coder, but also he's spent most of the last 15 years or so working across the enterprise. Brought the bank in 2008, found it was such a mess that he's re-architected the whole thing, made it microservices organization um, structured, and during the event said that they actually can refresh their core systems twice a week. And you go, oh, <laughs> nice. That's, that's where the growth is going to come from, surely. Okay, so after a quick word from our sponsor, we're going to come back with some thoughts from uh, Money 2020. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And we're back with Chloe James from RFI Group. And of course, uh, the regular cast of crew are all still here. Chloe, um, back from Money 2020, wondered if you had any impressions that you wanted to give us initially. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So obviously, I just attended Money 2020 the week before last, a a quick three and a half days uh, in Vegas from Australia, a long way to go for a short time, but it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I I got a lot out of the event. Some 11,000 delegates, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies, um, a really huge, huge show. I've never been to anything like it. Big trends that I really saw, and I guess something we'll probably talk about tonight is Financial inclusion was very much top of mind um, for so many people that I spoke to uh, and also a lot of the presenters on stage. Um, The usual data analytics, uh, machine-to-machine technology, sort of consumer-leading things or whether the banks and financial institutions are more being leaders at the moment, um, Internet of Things, uh, biometrics, which I guess goes in line with the financial inclusion piece. That was um, quite sort of top of mind, I thought, um, and the obvious blockchain um, issue. So they were sort of the big kind of key things that I uh, got out of the event. Uh, I heard some really interesting presentations from, you know, the PayPal's points, people of the, of the world. Um, Yeah. They were my, they were my big key pointers there. Very cool. And Chris, you were also uh, out there swanning it up for three days in Vegas. Uh, Any thoughts from yourself? Yeah. Apart from um, Cirque du Soleil, that was very entertaining. Um, It was a show that's uh, in, in its fifth year. And as Chloe says, is, really huge in that uh, attracting thousands of delegates bigger than Cybos already. Having said that, it's a show that's quite difficult to navigate because you have a lot of the discussions taking place on the fourth floor conference rooms whilst the exhibit floor is um, four floors below. So it's quite fragmented. And to be honest, the main reason for going is the networking because everyone that you need to talk to and need to know is there. The keynotes are interesting in that uh, someone made the comment this year, uh, they appear to be more like product pitches. And it's very true that the main sessions are there for sponsors to pitch their new releases rather than being general sessions of interest. Um, having said that, I was mainly there because I was chairing a and moderating a session on the future of digital banking with ING, Simple and Moven and was quite surprised to find that our room was a sellout. Um, probably about a thousand people in the room and the doors were closed because um, they wouldn't let any more people in the room. So that was pretty successful. Generally, um, coming back, uh, I agree with Chloe as you know, financial inclusion really top of mind this year. 
Um, that was probably the main discussion. Quite interesting on the exhibit floor hall to see that there's um, Alipay and Wirecard. And Alipay in particular, I think, surprised some people by saying that they were going global because um, they're definitely going to grow their payment services across Europe and America. They're not just staying in China. Um, and that was probably one of the key takeaways for me that um, when we talk about the new threats and co competition, we often look to the US or um, sometimes to Europe, we should start looking a lot more towards Asia because I think the Asian internet giants are really going to start taking over the world, not just uh, staying in China. Cool. Uh, I guess with a couple of key stories coming out of this week, the I think financial inclusion seems to be one that comes up again and again and we'll come on to blockchain. Really interesting that those keep coming back to us. And uh, the first uh, kind of story we've got that uh, was kind of being covered here by uh, equities.com is that some later stage companies got their shot at uh, startup pitch 180 at money 2020 so usually you see these startup pitches and typically these companies are very early stage um, they, they may or may not get anywhere but this seems to be some companies that you know are, are far further in their, their life cycle more what we call scale-ups including yeah. a company called TOP, um, who we met in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. But uh, Chris, any, any takeaways from that? I was going to say the Money 2020 guys um, have selected uh, brand new startups in a hackathon as well as later stage startups um, for a what startup pitch 180, as you say, and 180 is there for three minutes. It's a very short time to give a high level view of your company. Uh, I saw a couple of these presenting and in particular the um, the brand new startup pitch, which was um, from PIN. And, you know, it's kind of like a shortened version of Finnovate. It's okay. Uh, and having said that, I'm not a big fan of that format because I'd much rather have more in-depth demonstrations. Um, I sound a bit whiny, I guess, but um, it's just that I'm sort of going to too many of these conferences and seeing too many startup pitches. Um, having said that, Stash and Remedy Labs, um, got the prizes for the later stage startups and they both seem to have quite credible offerings. Stash is a consumer facing investment platform and Remedy Labs helps consumers interpret their medical bills, which in America is really important. So I didn't actually see them pitch, but I did see them. I saw the winners announced after which they sort of gave their own kind of little pitch in their winner announcement. And I guess agreeing with Chris there, it would be how good is the proposition versus how good is the actual person pitching? Because perhaps that kind of gives them a little bit of the edge there. Um, as far as later stages into their businesses, maybe that's just giving them a little bit more time to kind of perfect that pitch and that's why they're winning it. Or perhaps they're coming from a, a more sophisticated financial background and, and that could give them the edge as well. It seemed like the later stage startups got the, uh, the, the poor end of the stick, given that uh, Tuesday afternoon was the, were the early sort of seed fund presenters and then the uh, later stage got Wednesday morning Wednesday morning in Vegas come on that's that's going to be a, <laughs> a, a tough thing surely yeah I disappeared out and got a tattoo on Wednesday morning because it was so boring <laughs> I, d I didn't know what day it was in Vegas every single day or what time of the day it was I have to say that's no the, light. <laughs> it's, one, it's one of the tricks of Vegas which is that in the hotels um, they don't have any windows so you can feel like it's any time of day um, is a good time of day for gambling that's the whole point but on the converse of that you, when you're attending a conference you have no idea what time of day it is uh, it could be three in the morning three in the afternoon absolutely no idea 
I have to say, Chris, you, you, slightly, you slightly glossed over the fact that you got a tattoo there. So we might have to come back <laughs> to that one and put a, get, get that out on, uh, on on Twitter type thing in terms of uh, what that's of. But so is, is this, it, it kind of feels like the, the, the sort of pictures process to me feels a little bit like, like you say, it's like Finnovate attempt, right? You know, they, they've kind of had a bash at changing the format. Do you, do you think this type of thing works in, you know, 11,000 people? You know, I think the the format of, of Finnovate itself probably needs a little bit of a kind of a of a, of a refresh, doesn't it? In terms of the the sort of change in the industry that's happened. So, does this sort of fit into to Money Twenty Twenty, or is it just them trying to add another thing to their uh, to their armory? Well, I think you've got um, several conferences that have emerged on the fintech wave and money 2020 is obviously the biggest a lot of people often ask why it's so huge and the reason is that um, the organizers are incredibly effective at getting feet on the street and working with partners at local level so when you look at money 2020 europe for example there's a series of roadshows to get people to work with them uh, across all the countries of europe I'm fairly sure they do the same across the States and they'll be doing the same across Asia because one of the big announcements this year was that uh, Money 2020 is coming to Singapore in 2018. So it's a huge franchise. Um, You do wonder if it's going to be long-term sustainable because it's all down to the fintech fintech wave. But if any of us believe the fintech wave is going to bust, then we wouldn't be on this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if you if you look if you look recently, I had some statistics this morning about the amount that uh, China and across Asia is putting into fintech over the next twelve months, and it's bigger than the world alone has put into fintech. So in Asia, that's obviously going to be huge in twenty eighteen. I couldn't see it slowing down. But going back to si- to David's question, uh, um, in terms of the format, I think every conference producer is struggling with how to get a good conference format these days. They're all copying different things that work well and in terms of money 2020 as i say it's not really the conference that works it's the networking uh, and that's their big ticket item it's the 11,000 people plus that attend the conference uh, and being able to actually find everybody you need to meet in one place that's the key thing that's the whole reason why cyboss works to be honest um, being able to meet everyone you need to meet in, in one place Chris, what would have you thought the split would have been between sort of US-based delegates and kind of everybody else? Did you get a sense of that split? To an extent. um, I mean, I would say that the attendance at Money 2020 Vegas is um, about 30% bankers and 70% non-bank people, startups, technology companies, consultancies and venture capital investors. Uh, I'd say that the split in terms of countries, if I was to hazard a guess, is about the same, 70% US domestic, 30% overseas. Yeah. And certainly from the folks that I was meeting, I'd say that the majority were US do- domestic. Um, but having said that, when you hang out in the bars, you'd find the odd guy like uh, Lawrence Nisri, who runs FinTech France, um, and you know, yeah. folks like that, or even Chloe James. <laughs> I mean, I just I kind of led that in because I got a sense that it was very US focused. It was great to be there to see what was happening across the US, but it was very American to me. Not not a good or a bad thing. I'm just just a note to make. And I wonder whether in Asia, just ge- geographically, whether it might attract, you know, a, a broader range of delegates. Yeah, I, th- I think it's true um, of all the trade shows that I go to in that, um, I mean, Cybos has made a point of moving between the regions every year. So Asia, America, Europe each year. 
in a rotation order. And Europe is their most popular one. They get about 8,000 people to Cybos when it's in uh, Europe, and it was this year in Geneva. Uh, the US probably gets, I would say, around 6,000, and Asia around 5,000, um, because um, SWIFT is not as big in Asia as it is in America and Europe. So, and Money 2020 um, you know, did their first conference in Copenhagen this year, uh, in March, and they got, they got about 4,000 people, which is pretty amazing in that um, no European financial conference gets that number of people um, except for Cybos. And so, again, the, the, the franchise is working, but it's all about working on the street. I mean, the guys who organize it get free on the street. They really work their local partnerships, and that's the critical difference between why this works and why so many others struggle. I guess... Um... Just going back to the winner of the, uh, I, I was just looking through the website of the uh, list of winners or list of presenters, and uh, the winner Stash uh, has quite an interesting model. They're uh, a minimum of five dollars investment, but then rather than going through a, a risk assessment like you would with Nutmeg or Betterment or some of the big investors, uh, they have thirty ETFs to choose from with names like Clean and Green, American Innovators, and Invest with Buffett. So I think that's quite interesting in terms of uh, letting people choose and build and feel like they're building their own portfolio, like they're, you know, big, big end investors uh, uh, choosing based, as they say, on interests, beliefs and goals. I just hope they integrate it with some robo advisor. <laughs> I think this is going the other way, the you know, moving exactly. away from the the uh, the robo advisor and the, the questionnaire to a. Uh, you know, select your own portfolio of ETFs based on what you like and, and uh, what you think but, of them. But that's the reason why I'm saying it needs a robo-advisor, because most people don't know what they're selecting. Well, I guess it's that question of the the financial return versus the feeling and the experience of doing it. Because I, I think probably a lot of people, while they would get a better return just from, you know, going with a robo-advisor and, and something like scalable capital, uh, want something more. They want to feel involved rather than just get a financial return. And I think it's also the, the risk in, inherent in, in these things. And I, a lot of people, uh, when they're playing with ETFs or day trading or Bitcoin or anything, um, if they haven't got any of the wherewithal about uh, their protections when they're making those investments and trading in those instruments, can lose a lot of money. And you don't hear about the losers, you only hear about the winners. Definitely. But I guess that's why this is interesting that it starts at $5.00 because it yeah. almost then seems like fantasy uh, stock trading. You know, I've got a number of ETFs and, uh, and you know, I've, I've picked them based on what I like, which I guess, you know, like, in, the, in the stock market, people have been doing for a long time, you know, buying stocks of companies they like. Like gamifying the whole thing. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Nice, uh, nice shout, Jason. I think that's an interesting company you've um, highlighted there. Um, definitely a, a trend change coming. Um, and speaking of trend changes that that maybe aren't coming quite as quick, the uh, the US market and chip cards um, seem to be like chalk and cheese. And and Jack Dorsey here in an article, and it seems like um, called out at Money Twenty Twenty that people hate chip cards. And uh, Chloe, to your point, there's a very American view of the world coming out of Money Twenty Twenty. Um, certainly, that seems to be a very American view of the world. I mean, if you look across Australia and lots of Europe and, and indeed a lot of the world, chip cards are now just standard and we've already dealt with it. It's time to move on. Uh, China Union Pay is one of the largest contactless card issuers in the world, for example. Is this more of an example of 
just a crumbling infrastructure in the States? Is this just an Americanized view? Or is it because I think in this article, it says, you know, transactions are taking up to 10 seconds. Is it, is it an experience thing? Did, did it become clear when Jack made the speech? Yeah, I mean, Jack, Chris and I both watched Jack's presentation, not together. I think we were about five metres apart, but um, we both had a similar view, I think. Um, yeah, he was very much customer, customer, customer. I don't know if he revealed some grand, um, you know, light bulb moment. It was all about speed. It was all about things happening very quickly, um, obviously happening by different means, not with the card and how they hated that. And he's, I guess his big kind of part to me was basically him just saying that, yeah, they wanted speed, convenience, and they wanted things to take three seconds. I guess uh, transactions can still take 10 seconds in the UK if you get one of those small corner shops that does the whole dial-up thing where it has to then, you know, dial-up, connect to a bank through its modem and then, or uh, an acquirer through its modem and then do all of that uh, stuff. I guess we're, we've been um, lucky in the UK that most uh, sort of large chains have built the infrastructure that connect into uh, you know, via broadband, the, um, these uh, these systems, which then make it, you know, a second or two at worst. I think actually, Jason D- Dorsey was getting more at the fact that the payments process is a pain in the ass. It doesn't really work as it should. And that adding a pin to a payment checkout process is just making it even more difficult for the customer. Um, so going to Chloe's point, the customer should really be getting a painless payment process and instead they're getting one that's becoming more painful. What was interesting for me is that, you know, obviously Jack Dorsey's been billed at Money 2020 several times and this is the first time he's actually shown up. He came across as very, very dull, if I'm honest, because I think everyone expected him to be some sort of rock star and he's actually very laid back, very quiet uh, and very thoughtful. Um, he didn't say anything that really hit you in the head or between the eyes that made you go, wow, you know, which we all hoped there would be something. Um, it was actually mm-hmm. far more bland and just, you know, the customer is key, as Chloe said, uh, which is disappointing in some ways because um, being, you know, the top keynote of the whole event uh, didn't quite mm-hmm. f- fulfill the expectations. I think as we were speaking about earlier, it, it, there was sort of a sense that at Money 2020, these big keynotes that we were hearing from Google, PayPal, Alipay, um, you know, the list goes on. They were more sort of these kind of presentations that were very structured and perhaps that's because of the size of it and whether they know how much they can say. And then you actually got a lot out of going to the breakout sessions. As Chris mentioned earlier, his breakout session, I popped up to say hello because I thought I could pop up to the stage and there were literally, I think, actually more like 1,500 people in that room. So I sort of watched it from the very back. So that was where you really heard a lot more um, sort of in-depth and people were speaking much more openly. I went to a a women in fintech panel session, which had the head of um, PayPal in, in the UK, sorry for um, the female there, and that was brilliant. So I think at those, maybe it's the, maybe the key is you go to these huge com- conferences and events and the big things happen in the breakout sessions. Yeah, maybe there's something to that. I think there's uh, definitely an element of the big name sponsors are being used or the big names are being used to get everybody to come along, but the interesting stuff happens around the edges. Uh, and it's uh, you know, those product pictures were something that I saw at Money 2020 Europe as well. It does seem to be their format is you'll get these keynotes, we'll get these big names. And especially you know if you go back to 2009 before FinTech was a thing, Jack Dorsey and Square were the th- was arguably the company that made fintech cool so to have him as a keynote speaker would get a lot of interest it's certainly something that you know after paypal was the one that sent shockwaves throughout the financial services industry and i guess his point's an interesting one about 
especially in the UA, the inconsistency of the user experience at the point of sale is phenomenal. Sometimes it's chip and signature, sometimes it's chip and pin, sometimes it's put your um, card in, pull your card out, then put a pin in. And it's like you never really know what it is you're supposed to do. So that mass inconsistency, whereas in Europe, it's either contactless or chip and pin. And those are the two experiences I get and I know they work. Um, there's there's something to be said. There's also cash, Simon. You know, it's called money. You can use money. I, I, I don't know about that stuff. Oh, I, I you old folks like um, like cash, don't you? But I, I've never seen any of the stuff. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, so, the um, poker chips. <laughs> oh yes, indeed. I'm, I'm sure you've seen a few of those, Chris. Speaking of uh, ideologies clashing um, at, uh, <laughs> at, uh, at uh, Money 2020, it seems like um, Chloe, as you mentioned again in your outset, that uh, blockchain is the big theme um, or one of the big themes of the show. And there's a spotlight really here coming from capital markets with some folks at T0 saying, hey, look, this world of blockchain is going to be open um, and we're going to completely rewrite the law. Uh, you've got folks from R3 kind of saying, uh, look, this is uh, a world that is very complicated. We have to do this um, in a sensible way. Um, and then it looks like you've got some of the banks somewhere in the middle um, kind of saying, hey, look, this technology is really early, but we see real opportunity and potential in it. What, what are your takeaways there, Chloe, and then, then maybe Chris? I, yeah, I, I think I think here, sort of exactly to your points, that it, blockchain is where it's happening. As much as it's sort of early and it's that kind of getting in their early piece and the importance of it, I think it will move very quickly. So that's why people are just wanting to get across it as, as quickly as they can. That's that whole blockchain sort of biometric area. I had an interesting chat with a woman, Bianca Lopez from BioConnect. We're doing a lot of work with Visa at the moment in the in that sort of area. As far as in the sort of capital market space, I guess they would want to get on board as quickly as possible to be moving money around as quickly as possible. They're, they're probably my key points there. Yeah, I think from my side, um, everyone's trying to apply blockchain to everything. And it's become this massive panacea of a solution that's looking for problems. Um, and I think this is an illustration of that, which is that uh, blockchain applied to clearing a settlement is a little bit of a um, challenge because the technologist comes in, and in this case, Overstock saying, um, and I quote Judd Bagley, who's the head of Overstock T0 subsidiary, um, there are a lot of people who will be disintermediated, but they're the people at Wall Street. They see at lunch every day. We're in Utah. We don't care. We've taken a burn it down and start over approach. It sounds really impressive, but it's not. And the reason it's not impressive is that uh, clearing a settlement is a structural challenge between central banks, central securities depositories, and the trading counterparties and the brokers and banks and institutional investors to get an agreement across all of those to move to near real time clearing settlement is a huge industry change. And that's not a technology problem or solution. That's an industry problem. And to get that sorted out in, involves a lot more than just saying, we're going to get the high frequency traders clearing on blockchain. Yay. You know, I mean, I just don't see it being as simplistic as that. And in fact, I expect far more blockchain solutions to emerge in insurance and in supply chain and trade finance than, rather than clearing a settlement. I, I think that's going to take a lot longer for clearing a settlement to get sorted. Makes sense, Chris. And there's an interesting point from Emmanuel Edu of, of Credit Suisse here, a chap um, I've known for some time and, and is usually quite enlightened on these points. Uh, and the point he makes is 
actually this is much more about process change and changing how banks do things than it is changing the technology. The technology is an excuse. Um, there's a chap, Jacob Dino, who I talk to quite a bit, who uh, uses the term blockchain as an excuse um, to do things that we should have been doing all along. So blockchain exactly. is an excuse to change processes. Blockchain is an excuse to um, you know, refresh technology, of which you know the technology refresh, 80% might not be anything to do with blockchain. 100% of it might be nothing to do with blockchain. And it might be a lot more to do with kind of DevOps and real-time processes and, and so on. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity in capital markets, I think, around new asset classes and new areas but as you say Chris where you've got these incumbent financial institutions incumbent market players with incumbent infrastructure and incumbent data that's a lot of stuff that's sitting there that's big fat and slow and trying to get it to move faster isn't going to happen overnight it needs to uh, it needs needs some uh, long-term surgery I think and that's the critical point I'm making, which is that um, I think there's far too simplistic attitudes in the technology startups on blockchain about how they can solve all the financial market structural changes that need solving with a technology when actually it's the financial market structures that need to be changed, not the technologies. I think we've we've sort of seen this slightly in uh, you know in fintech the earlier stages of this as well, haven't we? Where the the slight sort of naivety of uh, of the startups really sort of hampered the the sort of change that was there. Do do you sort of feel that um, you know this? I guess naivety around you know blockchain technologies changing the world type thing really could actually hamper it because obviously there's a huge amount of potential there, isn't there? So um, you know how do we stop people really um, you know? playing sort of buzzword bingo with something else next year in terms of doing things and actually focus on the bits that this actually could really, you know, help move banks forward. I think the naivety is actually um, admirable. I mean, it needs to have that to actually come up with um, brand new ideas and brand new ways to do things. But in many ways, then there's a harsh dose of reality. And in blockchain, the harsh dose of reality is that uh, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, R3, Hyperledger, you know, Ripple, all of these things are right now just experiments. I mean, they're proofs of concepts, proof of work. Um, they're developing ideas, but they are just ideas at this stage. We're not going to get to the hard change until we really work out what's the right blockchain structure to use on a distributed ledger for this area that all the banks and their counterparties can agree on. And that's the point I'm really getting at of saying, you know, you, you won't change the world overnight. It's going to take a, a long time to change, five to 10 years. And I think you just need to have that reality in the thinking. And I guess that this panel is almost uh, reminiscent of conversations that, go, that are going on across fintech, because on one hand, you've got the burn it down, start again. If you were going to start this thing from scratch, it would look very different. And on the other hand, you've got, well, look, we've, just, we've got massive organizations. We've got, you know, central banks and investment banks and, you know, tier one banks around the world that need to evolve, you know, into this new future. It's the burn it down versus let's build and change and evolve what we've got. And I guess we're seeing that everywhere. Yeah, and um, it's the incumbent versus startup friction which ends up being a hybrid where they uh, you know, at the end of the day work together and partner together because you don't get rid of a financial system that's been built for 300 years and run by governments overnight but i guess there are some components or some areas where you know the burn it down works there are some where it really doesn't and then in the middle there's a you know there's a kind of hybrid 
Well, something I say in a lot of my presentations, and I think that Chloe might be able to jump in on this one, because fintech is really making its impact the most in areas that were not served well by banks. So uh, high-risk um, lending for small businesses uh, is really changed overnight by crowdfunding and by the SME lending companies. Um, the ability to have financial inclusion of people who were just not worth serving in the past by the banks because it was too expensive to serve them through their physical networks is changed overnight by fintech. And um, I, I think, Chloe, you've got, you've got some work on this. Yeah, we just I was just going to jump in there just to say that RFI group at the moment, um, we're just launching in December based on uh, meetings with, with banks globally that we're working with on financial inclusion and doing doing some sort of huge work in that space. I mean, there's two billion unbanked people at the moment. And I was reading as well, 71 million financially excluded in the US, which is perhaps brings us back to money 2020 and why that's such a key issue there. Um, we are certainly doing a lot of work on it. Um, it's it's sort of a high priority to some of the big banks that we're working with across Asia, Europe, Australia and, and elsewhere. So we'll be bringing that out and I'll be happy to sort of share that across the 11FS podcast series. Uh I think one of the big things there, for example, is that um, Ant Financial, which is now the biggest fintech unicorn ever, six, valued at $60 billion, uh, is all about financial inclusion because it's serving the Chinese consumer who wasn't being served well by the financial institutions before because it just uh, wasn't available to them. I think the, the interesting thing on the, the financial inclusion stuff is that when we've, we've looked at this a number of times before, and I always struggle to find functionality that actually people sort of gear towards financial inclusion that actually isn't massively applicable to everybody else as well. Um, you know, most of it actually starts to come into breaking solutions down into being very simple to understand, giving people very good controls to actually understand what they're spending and how they're spending it. And for me, that would be helpful. Never mind, you know, somebody who's kind of, um, you know, uh, needing to be sort of included uh, more from a financial perspective. I think when we start talking about access, as in, you know, banking the people who are unbanked, um, when we start talking about things like um, ensuring that actually the uh, the operating costs of these significant organizations is low enough to kind of make all of these things actually sensible, then again, all of this stuff just applies to, to kind of everyday banking. So I, th I think um, I think the problem with financial inclusion really is very similar to the problem with, with wealth. There's nobody has really figured out how to do that in the confines of, of digital services yet. But, um, you know, there's definitely a, a good number of people actually having a go. I actually, David, I'll just jump in there. I had a good interview, with, which I will share with the group, on uh, with the chief uh, COO of Moven, and he was actually talking exactly about this and this new app that they have sort of rolled out across the US. And it is all about sort of, res you know, responsibility within your um, within your bank and knowing what you're spending and what you're spending it on and sending alerts. So I think we'll begin to see that across definitely all the fintech community, but the, the sort of major and more traditional banks as well. And it shows a difference in attitude from the incumbent banks, which, when the credit crisis hit, quite clearly have been pushing people to borrow uh, because they don't know what they're spending and how, how much exposure they have to their financial risk. Whereas the fintech companies are actually the other way around, trying to make people spend smarter and save smarter. And on that note, I think that's a really nice summary of Money 2020. Um, thanks, everyone. Chris, for your insights. And Chloe, thank you for joining us. Go FinTech, I think, is the, uh, <laughs> is the net result here. Thanks. Great to be a part of it. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up our show for this week from the FinTech Insider and 11FS team. Next week, we've got a blockchain special. I'm sure you're going to enjoy that. And if you're still listening, be sure to tweet at FinTech Insider. 
And the first one that tweets at Fintech Insider and says, give me a t-shirt, we'll send you one. But remember to get in touch with us and give us some address details because we don't like sending them into thin air. We've stopped doing that. Till next week. Thank you.